0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the host for this podcast, and today's episode is episode number 220. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and give us a five-star review. That helps us get seen and heard by more people. Also, check out our YouTube channel, And once again, subscribe and give us a thumbs up. Today we're going to be interviewing a sports figure, a well-known sports figure. His name is Ryan Leaf. He is a former American football player who was a quarterback in the National Football League for four seasons. He played for the San Diego Chargers and the Dallas Cowboys. And he also played with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Seattle Seahawks. After his NFL career ended, Leaf completed his degree at Washington State. However, he had legal troubles involving drugs beginning in 2010, after a Texas judge sentenced him to 10 years probation. Two years later, he pled guilty to felony burglary and drug possession in Montana. Today, Leaf works as program ambassador for Transcend Recovery Community, a group of sober living houses in Los Angeles, Houston, and New York. He also has a radio show and works as a college football analyst on television. Without further ado, let's talk to Ryan Leaf. Ryan Leaf, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast today and telling your story.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me
0: awesome. And I like your sign in the back, the RDL show. Is that your radio show?
1: Yeah. My little TV show. Just, uh, I just finished doing it about, oh, just over an hour ago. Um, you know, something I picked up in the pandemic just kind of taking some control back. So yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, so it's a, it's a sports show, but it, uh, it starts with, you know, you know, life, you know, I think sports brings us together so we can have honest and open conversations. And that's, that's kind of what the show is about.
0: That's awesome. We'll definitely want to talk about that more um, you know, toward the end. But start me out with, like, what's your story? Where did you grow up? How did you get into sports? How did your life begin?
1: Well, I grew up in a small town in uh, in Montana called Great Falls, uh, raised by two amazing parents. Um, my mom was a registered nurse. My dad was uh, an insurance salesman, but uh, also a two-tour, a two-tour Vietnam veteran who um would go and raise three boys um build a business um i i don't subscribe to the idea that you're a product of your environment um because if that was the case i would have never ended up in a prison cell i was loved um i had uh, many extended family grandpa grandpa aunts and uncles cousins everybody a community that supported me um so you know it was a, a the, the epitome of white privilege, growing up where I did, and uh, and probably taking things for granted, um, in, in in little rural um, Great Falls, Montana.
0: Understood. So, did you you have a drug history? Correct.
1: Ah, uh, yes. My my history is uh, opioids. Um, okay. okay. Yeah.
0: When did you get started on opioids?
1: Probably. Uh, Probably about four months after I'd retired from the NFL.
0: Okay. So you made it through the your NFL career without doing drugs. You said
1: Well, I I I would like to blame my poor performances and boorish behavior on the fact that I was a drug addict, but I was just uh I was just not a very good human being. Uh the <laughs> the the drugs were just a symptom uh to medicate, you know, all those all those emotional feelings ultimately at the end. Uh, when i had you know quit doing what i'd always done and that was to be a sports star and when that was gone and competition which i tell people was my first drug of choice growing up was gone i needed to fill it with something and uh one night in las vegas i was at a fight and the announcer was announcing celebrities in the audience and he announced you know tiger woods and charles barkley and dr dre and the the MGM graph crowd just applauded and they announced my name and the whole place just booed and hissed. And oh my. it's not like that hadn't happened before you play professional sports. You walk into a an oppo- opposing team stadium, you get booed, but you're wearing a helmet and shoulder pads and this armor. Um, what my addict brain, because I think I will, I know for a fact that I was a drug addict long before I ever took a drug. Um, my, what I heard was not only are you a, a terrible football player, Ryan, but you were a shitty human being. That's that's what my attic brain heard. And sure enough, that night, an acquaintance of mine, uh, you know, offered me a couple of Vicodin with the alcohol I was drinking, because um, I was going to have to go to parties where there were celebrities and uh, Hall of Famers and Super Bowl champions where I always felt less than mm-hmm. um, and judged. And, you know, I took them um, with the alcohol and I didn't feel any of that. It did exactly what it was supposed to. They're painkillers for a reason. I was in a lot of emotional pain about being a failure, not living up to expectations, uh, criticism from others, judgment, and so this worked. And it would start uh, that night. About an eight-year run of just all, all, you know, always trying to chase, chase that feeling. Um, it wasn't the first time I had been introduced to it. I've had multiple surgeries, fifteen to be exact, over wow. the process of my career. And after every surgery, I was given this opioid uh, medication to help me get back in rehab. And so I never abused it, but I knew it worked, right? I knew what it did. It took away my acute physical pain. And in this moment in Las Vegas, um, I had been, I think, begging to be be numb for a long time. And that's exactly what it did. It killed my pain, my emotional pain. So I just started self-medicating. I didn't seek help or understand what I was doing. I kind of looked at what I was doing was the right thing, the wrong way, I guess, going to doctors, telling them I was in pain because, you know, I guess essentially I was, I was in some sort of physical pain. I got beat up for a living until of course, as anything, you know, it runs its course and you become a junkie. And that's what I did. That's what I became.
0: And so when you became a junkie, as you put it, what was the point? And it was just primarily opioids. Was it Vicodin or did you move on to something else?
1: Yeah. Luckily for me, I didn't uh, move on to heroin or, or on the street. I I continued with, you know, with prescription medication, uh, through doctors and then ultimately, you know, um, I, you know, I became, became a criminal in the fact that I would go to people's homes, uh, pretend I was interested in spending some time with them and rummage through their medicine cabinets and, you know, Surprisingly, nine times out of ten, in households, there are some leftover uh, opioid prescription medication left around, and they were ultimately my b- drug dealer. My hometown became became my drug dealer.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay, but that, but just taking um, painkillers out of somebody's medicine ch- chest that didn't send you to jail. Yep. So.
1: Yes, it did burglary. Oh, it did. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. burglary um, um, possession of a controlled substance. Yeah. That sent me to prison for seven years. Wow. <laughs> they made an example of me with my hometown.
0: I see. Okay. But you okay. So you're not a football player anymore. And now you, because of burglary, you have, you're you've landed. Whoops. I'm sorry. You've landed in jail. So what progressed from there?
1: Nothing, you know, it, it was the perfect uh, showcase of that. I was the issue, right? The, uh, the the substance was removed from my system when I was arrested, but I was as miserable and angry and judgmental as as I'd ever been. So clearly I was still the problem. I am a drug addict um, without the drugs still, and I had to change that, but I, I wasn't willing to, and nothing changed for probably 26 months, uh, of the 32 months I was in prison. Um, I got, you know, I laid around, I didn't go outside. It was, I ballooned up to like 325 pounds, um, was about to stroke out from high blood pressure was, um, as miserable as you could imagine, uh, in terms of what I thought my future was or, or how, or what I could offer anybody or anything. I I pushed away everybody that had ever loved me. I mean, it was the most, and I wasn't using, you know, that showed that, uh, that it was a, the substance was a byproduct. um, You know, the real problem was my mental health um, and how I lived my life.
0: Exactly. That's what we've said many times on the podcast is that the drugs or alcohol are the solution to the problem. They're not the problem. No. So what changed that for you? 26 months into your sentence. What changed?
1: My roommate. um, He was an Afghan Iraqi war veteran. And he had done something I think a lot of us have done in our lives, and that's drive drunk one night when he was home on, on leave and he just so happened to uh, kill somebody. Mm. And he had been in there for eight years since he was 23 years old. And I watched him on a daily basis, not be resolute with who people believed he was or saw him. And he tried to make positive changes. he had made amends for what he'd done. Uh, he would forgiven himself. And he tried to better himself every day in prison. And that was that kind of person stood out because everybody else in prison is not trying to better themselves. They're trying to just maintain. And that usually means to just continue with what and who they were on the outside. In my case, I I wasn't doing anything. I was just laying in bed, you know, self-loathing, angry, all those things. And I guess finally one day he kind of had enough of my attitude uh, and he felt comfortable enough to confront me. And he suggested that we go down. Well, first he said, you know, get your head out of your ass. Um, you don't understand the value that you have not only for the men in here for when, but for when you get out, cause Ryan, you're going to get out at some point I may never. So let's, we're going to go down to the prison library and help people who don't know how to read, learn how to read. And, uh, I can't tell you why I did it. I've had many of those come to Jesus moments from mentors, family, coaches, and I just literally, you know, had told them to all fuck off. Um, I got this. And in the, maybe because the substance had been on my system for 26 months, I didn't use while I was in prison. Um, and I acquiesced. I mean, not not, not without begrudgingly, you know, I remember still walking down the hall in my red jumpsuit thinking this is stupid. This isn't going to help me, you know, doesn't know how important I am. You know, the the irony of, the guy in the red jumpsuit walking down a prison hallway still thinking he's important <laughs> is, is silly. It's so silly.
0: The quarterback in the prison in the red jumpsuit. Okay.
1: And so it. I walked into a room where there were, you know, 50 year old men in a place where you're not supposed to show any vulnerability. Be vulnerable and transparent and say, Ryan, I can't read. Can you help me? And I don't think growing up in Montana around cowboy culture and then in locker rooms my whole life, that I don't think I've ever heard another man say that. I need help. Can you help me? So it shook me. And um, I started helping. And like, none of this would have changed anything if I if I didn't go back, right? If I went one day and and never came back, nothing changes. You have to it's practice. It's like anything you do. So I started going back and uh, a week passed and then uh, two weeks and then a month. And I realized I was more personable. I was talking to my family on the phone. I was sleeping better. And what I came to realize is that I was being of service uh, to another human being for the first time in my life. I used to think what I did on Saturdays and Sundays, playing that silly game, was how I was of service to others. What a, what a silly concept. Um, but here were, here were two men in the most uh, um, awful place you can imagine. Dealing with an adverse situation, um, helping one another get through it by being vulnerable and transparent. Isn't that exactly what AA is? It just wasn't a different form of a fellowship. And so that was the start. Before I knew it, I was now the TA for the substance abuse counselor. And I knew that this was gonna have to be at the foundation of who I was when I got out or like nothing was gonna change, nothing at all. I'm, I know my pattern of behavior. I needed to make it about somebody else and never about me again. And so that was what it was when I walked out of prison, Uh, December 3rd, 2014, only two people there to pick me up with my mom and dad. I burned bridges everywhere else. Uh, Everybody else had left me and uh, didn't have any money, didn't have any prospects, didn't have anything. Um, A credit score was like 500, but Mm -hmm. I had hope. Um, And at the time I didn't realize where where that hope was coming from. It was coming from what, what I had done in prison but i knew i had to continue with it and that's that's where it started i had i had nothing ahead of me i just had this hope that had that had filled me up because of the service i was i was doing while in prison
0: well you know i think that's an amazing story and i think that the ability to help another person is so huge that I mean, it's it's huge, and you. I'm sorry for evaluating for you, but you had that. You had helped people. I mean, imagine. I can just imagine teaching someone like that how to read. You can't exist. Well, you take reading. it for granted.
1: Yeah, yeah, you take it for granted too. I because I'm I was going through the process, and I'm like, it just it just felt so simple growing up, and you know, being educated and learning how to read and everything like that. I'm then teaching somebody who's lived their whole life and figured out a way to get through it without without the ability to do so uh, and how to manipulate all that stuff. It it was, it was fascinating uh, to, to come from it, from that, from that angle. And it, it was, it's very rewarding. Uh, It was very rewarding. I can imagine.
0: And it's interesting. You remind me, um, of a friend of ours who was working on some sort of a project, and he was going into prisons, and he was asking the wardens if there was any common denominator of the uh, uh, a common denominator of the people who were on death row or who were there for life, and one for one, it was that they couldn't read. You are listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast, or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today, and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby.
1: Yeah it's 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 amazing that 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 happens but you you take it for granted and you don't understand how blessed you are to have had and been educated the way I was like I said you just it gives you perspective um you know now when I hear people complain um I mean we'll be on the golf course and I'll have I'll hear somebody complaining about how long the round's taking and I just I'll say something and I know it'll be shocking I'll be like I'm like it could be worse, and they're like, I don't know how worse it could be. And I'm like, well, You could be in prison, and they just stop in their tracks. And they're like, and they look at me and they they kind of do a double take. And I'm like, Oh, that is that's Ryan Leaf,
0: yeah.
1: he was in prison. This is okay. <laughs> I, oh, I don't know what to say here. And I just, and I, I get a chuckle out of it because my perspective has totally shifted. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing ever that could put me in a place where I'm like, This is awful. This is the I cannot believe, uh, what a what a an egregious act is being perpetrated on me right now. There's just nothing that can do that because (laughs) of my perspective.
0: Wow. That's such a major life switch, you know, because I talk to you now and I can't imagine the Ryan that was the way you were before then. You know what I mean? Well, and and
1: I've made some relationships with people outside of it the last six years since I've been out of prison. And yeah, like they, you know, they'll see videos or hear stories about me, And it's just, it's, it's so foreign to them, but it's the truth. And I have to remind myself of it because, uh, you know, you just don't change overnight, right? 35 years of behavior exists. So old behavior crops up and I need people around me, accountability partners that can show me the mirror and be like, Hey, that, what you just said was really, really old behavior, man. You need to take a look at that. And it's hard to hear that because I feel like I've changed. I feel like I've made advances, but I, I still got to understand, like, you know, that's okay. I'm still this flawed human being trying to be better every day and I'm going to mess up. Uh, And it's good. It's good to know that because I got placed on a pedestal so early on in my life that I was so, so shameful when I'd screw up that I was so worried about what other people thought and how it, how it, and it was a, a bunch of shame around it. And I have to try to steer clear as that from that as much as I can.
0: I think I completely agree with you. And all I was going to say just to add in is that we're all trying to be better people every day. And, you know, anyway, we all, we all have to do that. I have to do it as well. I'm not going to get into my story though. This is about you, but um, I just think very well done to you on making the change that you made and however it happened, you know, in prison with the gentleman that was there. Is he still in prison by the way?
1: He got out about a month after I did. And, uh, and is excelling, Uh, um, he he wanted to go back to school, be an engineer, uh, have a family he's doing all of that. So it's, it's, I think there were like 88, 88, gentlemen on my, you know, floor or cell block or whatever you want to call it. And, um, there's only two of us that have gotten out and stayed out or, or, or gone back. And that's me and my roommate.
0: And isn't that interesting that it was the two of you who were giving back the whole time you were in, or not the whole time, but while you were in there and helping other people. Um, yeah, the value of helping others is is just, it's huge.
1: Tremendous, yeah.
0: And I think, I think the thing that um, I want to make sure our listeners get um, is, you know, you can change, anybody can change. And, you know, Ryan's a good example of that. As he says, 35 years of an operating basis if you will as a human being and now it's changed
1: yeah i'll be turning 45 here uh in the next few days um
0: well happy birthday in advance although this won't go you. up until june but anyway that's fine happy okay birthday well anyway. then
1: last month last <laughs> month everybody i turned 45 there you um, go. so i mean it's 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 the epitome of it, it doesn't matter what happened in the past. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what happened yesterday or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. All that matters is what you're doing today. And you can try to be the best possible version of yourself and you may not live up to it. And you'll lay your head down and make amends and, and, in you're, and you um, open-minded and, and have self-awareness around it and try to try to do better the next day. That's, that's the simplistic version of our programming now uh, as human beings, we make things as, so complicated when it's it, when you can break it down to something that simple and sometimes we have to break it down to minute by minute you add up yep. 60 of them there's an hour goes by before the day is over and, and and all of it um but i know tonight if i do what i did yesterday and continue to do what i'm doing today i'm going to lay my head down uh and feel peaceful and unchaotic and uh, you know press repeat tomorrow morning
0: Awesome. So tell us what you're doing now.
1: Well, a a lot of things. Yeah, I wear a lot of hats. Um, (laughs) You know, when I got out of prison and I went to treatment, um, I I didn't want to be in the public eye ever again. I thought that was, I thought that was the problem. You know, of course I still was looking for answers of why and all these things. When the answer is looking at you in the mirror every single day, it's you. And uh, uh, I started working for a, uh, a sober living community here in Los Angeles where I went to treatment and uh, I remember when the guy offered me the job uh, he said it pays $15 an hour and the only reason I'm telling you this is because I was making five million dollars a year and was miserable and I have just been offered a job for 15 bucks an hour and felt more value because of what I'd be doing and that's driving newly sober people to their meetings to to counseling sessions and then being in the house to be a bit of a an advocate for them and so that's where it all started my boss saw something bigger Uh, he was a sports fan he knew my story he knew how much my story impacted him so he felt that it was going to impact others so he he reached out to me and asked if i would start sharing my story a little bit i talked to my sponsor my board of directors the guys that i go to for you know major life decisions because i don't i don't make the proper decisions my best thinking gets me to a prison cell, so we know how that works. Um, and my sponsor was like, "You get asked to be of service to share your story, you do it." Usually, it's in 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 the in in the vein of, of recovery, but this was going to be on the outside. But my story is public; it really is. I don't I don't live in the world of anonymity, and I don't choose to. I find what I've gone through as a badge of honor, and I know because of it, people who hear my story can relate to it and it may possibly save lives because it saved mine, the fact that it was public. Every time I messed up, there was consequences. There was mm-hmm. a, there was a magnifying glass on it. There are so many addicts and alcoholics that are doing this in the dark where no mm-hmm. one has seen it. And then they're just gone. Yep. It saved my life because everybody saw it. And I had not, I had nothing more than to, to, to hold myself accountable and take a look in the mirror and, and either change or, or, or die. And so, Um, I started speaking locally to schools and uh, uh, into kids, and uh, ESPN uh, heard about it. Uh, They wanted to make a documentary. When they came in, I said, you can't do this for just a week. Uh, It has to be substantial. You have to see change. You have to see positive forward motion. It just can't be a puff piece. So I said, I'll do it if you'll follow me for 18 months. Oh, wow. And that was a big that was a big stepping stone for them because they normally want to just pump out content and they agreed. They agreed to it. They agreed to it and they spent 18 months with me and saw the, the real change in what I became with that company. It started out talking. I became their brand ambassador, um, program ambassador started traveling all over the country to speak and tell my story. And then, you know, what I had gone to school for, which was broadcast journalism, that started opening up to me an opportunity to do radio with Sirius XM. And then, you know, my dream comes true and the Disney corporation and ESPN actually show up and offer me a job. And if I'd have told you, you know, six years ago when I walked out of that prison cell, that you'll be working for the Disney corporation. Now (laughs) I would have told you, you were nuts. You were Mm -hmm. absolutely nuts. Um, the pandemic has limited that. I haven't been able to travel around and speak as much. I've been fully vaccinated here in the last couple of weeks. I'm going to start going back out on the road speaking here at uh, at the end of May, um, doing some hey, events Brian, around the country. Sorry to
0: interrupt you, but the the documentary that ESPN did is it available to watch? Is it, it is. somewhere
1: it's through that... it's, it's through a, it's through a uh, the uh, platform of E60, and it's a 90 minute documentary called Leaf, just L E A F, and I. Sure, you can find that on demand in any of those uh, ESPN apps.
0: Awesome. I I want to watch it. Anyway, I cut you off. I apologize.
1: No, but... it's good. My mom, my mom makes a, a special appearance in it. Everybody seems to love love her. Um, <laughs> you know, she had to she had to deal with an addict son for a very very long time, and so um, I know my parents are incredibly proud to to be able to you know have a grown son now and, 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 and have a relationship with, with him rather than worry, you know, parents worry all the time, but when, when the, when the son is sick, it it really, really infects the whole family and the whole family continues to get sick. And that's, that is what the, uh, cancer of it all is.
0: Yeah. You're right. Do you have your own family now? Do you have wife and kids? Kids? No I don't wife?
1: have a wife. I don't have a wife, but I, but we do have a little boy. Uh, I have a son who's three and a half years old. Um, best thing I've ever done. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's the best. And what's cool is he'll never have to see a, uh, a father who's, who's drunk or high or incarcerated. I mean, I think that's, I mean, those are small, small barriers to try to overcome. A lot of people would think, but I'm very proud of that that he will never have to see that version.
0: There's nothing small about that, Ryan. I think you are you are a rock star just for doing that. you know i I interviewed a gentleman and he said i don't I don't want to be validated for just being clean and sober. and I'm like, you deserve to be validated for being clean and sober. It's not easy,
1: you know no, it's not. it's not i and I like to validate those who do it i I don't necessarily just because when you when you find this piece in, 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 uh, serenity, you know, you try not to make it about yourself. So you almost feel like, you know, you, the humility side of it doesn't want to take on the adulation for simply getting sober, but you're exactly right. I mean, it's the, when people ask me, what's the, what's the, you know, what's the best thing I've ever done, you know, outside of having my son, it's, it's getting sober. It's the, and they're like, you were the second pick in the NFL draft. And I said, that was easy compared to what I, what I had to do to get sober
0: got it ryan thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today now if somebody wants to watch um rdl that i see behind you how did where do they yeah. find that
1: it's uh it's on youtube uh, monday wednesday fridays um uh, live live show 12 30 pacific on youtube the rdl show or the ryan d leaf show uh you can find me on twitter and, and instagram at ryan d leaf those are the best ways my d- direct messages are open um um, so you, if you're struggling and you need to reach out to somebody or ask for help or anything like that, that's been a monumental piece in my connection with the, with my communities, um, as well as go to my website, the to, uh, investigate what we're doing, speaking different places and what's up. So I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, this is a, this is a great podcast and I know that you guys are being part of the solution and that's all we can do. Stay out of the result, be part of the solution. I love it.
0: Thank you. Great interview, great messages. I, you know, his was different than anybody else. You know, oftentimes we talk to a recovered addict and they say, you know, they kind of had an epiphany. He, his story is totally different. And yet all of the messages are pretty much what everybody needs to hear. And the fact that he kind of found his way out by helping other people, that is huge. That's huge. First, you have to help yourself, then you have to help other people. So thank you so much for listening. We will be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, point of no return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is the Addiction Podcast at Yahoo.com.